This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. talking about Alberta politics, you used to sort of say, like, where are the progressive conservatives going to go? And you'd be talking about the conservatives that would be business owners and they'd be cool, of course, with equal marriage rights. They'd be pretty cool or open-minded at least to talk about decriminalizing cannabis. They'd want to make sure that the arts sector saw proper funding. They, they want to make sure that post-secondaries are funded to a healthy level. And now... When you're talking about progressives in the conservative party in Alberta, where are the progressives going to go? You're talking about people that believe science. You're talking about people mm-hmm. that believe in modern medicine. You're, t- you're talking about people that believe in things like democracy. This is a very different turn. Where are they going to go? I mean, if this party blows up and if a lot of the influences with these extreme right social conservative lobby groups then where the hell are hundreds of thousands of people going to go? I don't believe for a second they're all going to go to the NDP, and I doubt you do either. That was me yesterday in conversation with political columnist Graham Thompson. If you missed the show, be sure to check it out. We were talking about a potential split of Alberta's conservatives, and a whole bunch of you pushed back on it. A whole bunch of you loved it as well. Johnny putting out that TikTok at our Real Talk RJ account. Uh, About 20,000 views to this point. And I think it's because it's resonating with folks. But Real Talkers like Don took an opportunity to to send us an email. We wanted to open with that today because Don, quite frankly, is pissed off. And he says, Jesperson, yesterday, you, arrogant, uh, to think that modern conservatives possibly might just be capable of believing in science, modern medicine. Medicine and democracy. Don says you don't have to support abortion or safe injection sites, in quotes, to believe in science, medicine, and democracy. A happy Thursday, everybody. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I was going to email Don back and all of the others that wrote in, and then I thought, well, why don't we just use the show to address it? Here's the point. Uh, conservatives don't want to be talking right now about whether or not parties going to split this election. They want to be talking about forming government. A whole bunch of you told me that yesterday, last night on the concourse at the Edmonton Oilers game. Big win against Las Vegas. Huge. No big oh. deal. No big deal. But a whole bunch of you members of Canada's most engaged audience right here on Real Talk said, listen, don't try to paint this as some sort of fringe, far-right driven extremist party. It's not. We're a bunch of reasonable, moderate people that just want to have a government that's efficient, that just want to have a government that understands what business wants, that reflects the values of Alberta. Yes, the new Alberta. Alberta with a growing and diverse population. That's who we are. Don't try to paint us unfairly. And we're not. We're just reflecting what we're seeing. We're reflecting uh, the conversation and amplifying it so we can talk about it. You know, rumors that are suggesting that there could be a coup forming within the Conservative Party right now, three weeks out from an election. Conservatives like Don don't want us talking about take back Alberta and, 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 and this influence that their founder says that they have, quote, controlling the premier's office. But listen, we... Call them how we see them. We know what we're seeing right now. And it is 
to a certain degree, very concerning, or at least it should be for supporters of the Conservative Party in Alberta that a group that talks about women staying home, not pursuing their careers, but instead growing the human race in the face of an anti-humanist movement. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? Because it is. And this is the guy that says that he controls the premier's office. This is the guy, the premier attended his wedding. We're talking about the Take Back Alberta crew. She was there in March. And so Don, I don't know what you want me to tell you, but even in the fact, in Don's two-sentence reply, and I'm not here to pile on Don, but he says you don't have to support abortion. Nobody's asking you to support abortion, Don. People are asking you just to get out of the way of a woman's right to choose what she does with her own body. You don't have to support abortion. You or people you love don't have to get abortions. But the fact that that's the first thing you reference in talking about politics kind of proves my point. This provincial election is not about abortion. Daniel Smith doesn't want it to be about abortion. I'm sure Rachel Notley would be more than happy for it to be about abortion because we know where the NDP is going to stand on that. But the question is, what direction is the Conservative Party going, the United Conservative Party going right now, and is it sustainable? A whole bunch of you that are listening probably are planning on voting for the UCP. But are you voting for the leader? What are you voting for exactly? Are you maybe voting against the NDP? We want to know where you're at. This show wants to reflect the values and perspectives of where its audience is at. If you feel like something we're talking about is misrepresentative of where you see the direction going, of where you're voting, or of exactly the issue that you and the people you care about are talking about right now, if we're missing the point, make sure you take a second to send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We want to make sure the talk here is real and reflective of where this audience is at. Coming up on tomorrow's show on Friday, our Real Talk Roundtable is going to feature members of this political group chat I'm in, and we're going to take this on right out of the gates. In the meantime, this episode of Real Talk is presented by the Business Career College. You can find it online at businesscareercollege.com. Alberta Financial Advisors, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that your insurance license is due for renewal at the end of June. If you still need continuing education credits, head over to businesscareercollege.com and sign up for the CE Drive podcast. 200 bucks gets you an annual subscription that provides you with all the continuing education credits you could possibly need. Every episode is packed with information that you can use in your business. So if you're a financial advisor in Alberta right now, take two seconds to check out businesscareercollege.com. We're going to be talking to the Public Safety Minister of Canada. That's the Honorable Bill Blair coming up in about 20 minutes. We're going to get into a whole bunch of stuff, including these wildfires that, of course, are are tapping on the shoulders of every single firefighter, every single wildland firefighter in Western Canada right now, Alberta is the focus, of course, of not just emergency management professionals in this province, but across the country. And that's where we're going to go. We'll talk about those supervised consumption sites that that Don referenced in his email. And and, and we're going to get into crime rates in some of the major downtown city centers. We're talking about Edmonton, Calgary, and the like. That with the Honorable Bill Blair coming up in about 20 minutes. But we lead off today... In one of the most deadly periods in the last number of months in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and that's saying something. Uh, Israeli bombing has claimed the lives of at least 15 people, 24 the total over the last couple of days. So says 
Gaza's health ministry. These are Israeli strikes on the Palestinian territory. Four of those killed yesterday. Fighters with the popular front for the liberation of Palestine. Joining me in studio, a passionate Real Talk audience member. You've heard him on the show before. He speaks with uh, the Canada-Palestine Cultural Association and Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, a good friend, Musa Kaskas. It's nice to see you again, my man. Nice to see you, Ron. Yeah, it's it's kind of a tough anniversary today as well. It's a very tough anniversary On a couple today. of fronts. Yeah, so uh, at this time last year, if people remember, the same thing was happening. Bombing Gaza. I think uh, it was an 11-day campaign, I believe. I think over 250 people dead. Children, of course, Gaza is 2 million people, 800,000 of which are children. So uh, the most densely populated place uh, on the planet. So bombing there usually does kill children. And um, the Israeli authorities know this, but they assume that it's worth the collateral damage for what they're doing. Um, it's also... Uh, World Kofiya Day. I just want to point out this Kofiya is a uh, it's a uh, symbol of resistance for the Palestinian people. So I thought I'd come decked out in this in honor of uh, World Kofiya Day. Um, uh, I, the situation itself, uh, it's to me, it's not shocking. Everyone says, "Oh, it's so shocking what's happening," but uh, honestly, we've seen this over and over and over. Like it happens every year. Um, how long have we been friends? And how long have every Ramadan? I tell you, watch, they're going to bomb in Ramadan. Certainly, they bombed in Ramadan this year. They bombed in Ramadan last year. So. Um, the situation in Israel right now is really bad. It's really, really bad because uh, not only do you have Israel pushing through this agenda of occupation and apartheid and all these things, but also the Israeli people themselves are fed up with their government, right? You saw protests in Israel, thousands, tens of thousands of people protesting against their government's judicial overhaul, which was in the news a lot in the U.S. and somewhat here in Canada. Uh, the judicial overhaul is just basically the Israeli government trying to uh, take away the power of the judiciary. So people like Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister, he's still on fraud charges. He's still, ha he's still in court. And so uh, him and another guy, Ben Gavir, who's the uh, <laughs> minister of national security, and I only laugh because this guy was literally charged in an Israeli court for terrorism uh, against Palestinians and inciting hate against Palestinians. Uh, he's on YouTube waving his gun at Palestinians in the street. He lives in an illegal settlement, by the way. So do a lot of the uh, Israeli authorities. Uh, and again, illegal not just because I say it's illegal, because the international community says it's illegal, and our government, Canada, recognizes the occupied territories uh, as illegal and all the settlements as illegal. So um, just a lot going on uh, there right now, and I think uh, these protests in Israel, um, no one was protesting about Palestinians. The Israelis were only protesting about their own democracy. And uh, the, the unfortunate and blinding truth was, while they're talking about their own democracy, they're literally oppressing and occupying a people that are right next door, right? Uh, Two million in Gaza. Um, the West Bank's the same thing. The West Bank is under uh, occupation. Um, you know, and, and, and all I hear when I listen to Western media is, well, they're going after terrorists. Well, I mean, if you're, t if you're saying people that are defending their home and resisting occupation are terrorists, then it's very easy to label others as terrorists. Um, so that's kind of, kind of the situation right now. Um, also, one thing I do really need to point out with Western media is there was four children killed in the 15, um, not last night, but I believe the night before. None of those were recognized. All the media just said militants killed in strike. No mm. one recognized that there's children dead in Gaza. Um, again, I said Gaza is almost half children and it's the most densely populated place on the planet so if you bomb that place you're gonna kill children israel knows this uh and they do targeted assassins uh assassinations um that's that's just you know that's 
it's uh, it's status quo right now, unfortunately, for the Palestinians. You're, uh, you know, you're, is it fair to call you, you're a, obviously a very passionate person. Mm. I, I, I don't think I would have to ask you a single question. And I think that you, 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 you are here because you're passionate about a message yeah. and you're passionate about uh, manifesting action. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average Canadian, when, when you hear about violence in the Middle East, yeah. and, and I do not say this to be insensitive, mm. I'm just saying what I see around me is, is, is people almost look at it as though it's inevitable yep. and almost as though and maybe maybe this isn't the average canadian maybe this is global citizens as though kind of it seems like it's not going to change and and it almost is status quo and and it just continues to happen how do you reconcile that yeah that's a very good point because that's exactly what happens a lot of people say well yeah kids are dying in in palestine but kids are dying in africa kids are dying here kids are dying what's the difference there's lots of places around the world well this is the longest standing occupation in the history okay uh ukraine was invaded I think on day two, they said, this can't happen. We can't let another country occupy another. Russia can't occupy Ukraine. What is this? This is a post-colonial world we're living in. How are we going to allow occupations? Meanwhile, in Palestine, most governments, if you look in their charters, they recognize that it's occupied. Even the Israeli Supreme Court made a ruling, I don't remember how many years ago, saying that it is occupied territory. So they recognize it's occupied. The language is starting to change. Now they're starting to call it disputed territory. But again, this is just people trying to whitewash crimes, whitewash crimes away. And, and just say, you know what? Well, uh, it's, it's a complicated situation. This is another thing we're giving. Um, the other thing that I think is very dangerous is we misuse the word anti-Semitism. You know, I've, I personally got attacked on social media. People sent private DMs to me saying, you're an anti-Semite, someone should come after you, but like really serious stuff. Um, and I want people to know this has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. I, uh, yesterday I sat with a good Jewish friend of mine, recent friend, and he said, he said, my life's goal was to make sure that Judaism and Zionism are separated. Mm. Because Israel does not hold a monopoly on Judaism. In fact, if you read the history, and I, and I told you before, I'm writing a book on this, so I've been reading as much uh, uh, you know, literature as I can, both from the Palestine side and the Israeli side. If you read the history, you'll find that most Jews actually were against Israel before the founding of Israel. Most Jews did not, di- didn't want someone to tell them, hey, leave Britain, leave this place, come to this place called Israel. In the middle of the Middle East, well, you'll be around, you'll be surrounded by enemies, as they put it, right? So um, I, 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 don't, I don't accept the fact that, you know, if you criticize Israel, then you're criticizing Judaism. I, I'm insulted by that because I, I'm a Muslim, I'm a religious person, and I respect religious people. So I respect uh, Jews probably more than most people. Let's be honest, most of your audience is probably atheist at this point. Religion is really going downhill, here in the West at least. I'd be curious to know, actually. Uh, um, well, I, I mean, they did put out a, a report, um, I think it was two years ago about religion decline. It was in the, it was in the paper, and they said, yeah. I think, I don't want to get into it too much because I don't, I don't want to be quoted, but I think they said by 2050. This, this is one. the one controversy <laughs> you're concerned about know, stepping right? into. Talking about well, either way, either way, let's, I want to keep that part out, but I do want people to know this is not about anti-Semitism. Please, if you're Jewish and you're listening, um, there's a space for you to fight for justice. And there are many Jews that are fighting for justice in Palestine. And that doesn't mean you have to abandon your love for uh, Judaism or even for Israel for that matter, because there's people in Israel doing good work as well. But people need to know that we're not going to tiptoe around these things. The Nakba, which is what we're commemorating in this Sunday event is something that, and I'll define it really quick. So the Nakba is basically, it's commemorated every year on May 15th. But what it recognizes is that period around the founding of Israel, where Palestinians, about 750,000 Palestinians were displaced, kicked out of their home to make room for 
um, for Israel, uh, to make room for the state of Israel. So um, this period, this Nakba period, is something that is deep, deep trauma, uh, not just for the generation that felt it, but intergenerational trauma for Palestinians. And now what you have is this... Um, movement in Israel and around the world of what we call Nakba denial. So they're denying that it even happened. They're saying, oh, no, these people just left their homes or they voluntarily left. I mean, I don't know how anybody could believe if someone came to you and said, hey, there's going to be a new state coming. Uh, it's not going to be Canada anymore. It's going to be something else. So I need you to leave your home. Um, do you want to just leave voluntarily? Pick up your things, your kids and leave? That's not how it works. These people were forced out of their homes. There's people that's still alive today that will tell you stories of how they were kicked out of their homes. So, but unfortunately, like we were talking about off air earlier, Israel's become super, like the right wing. Again, my Jewish friend yesterday was telling me, he's like, uh, I wrote it down because I didn't want to get it wrong. He said, Israel, Israel's right wing is following early stage fascism. Okay, this is a Jewish Canadian who is, he says he's a Zionist too, actually. He doesn't want Israel to be, he just wants Israel to change. But he is worried about how uh, right-wing uh, Israel, Israeli governments become. These guys are the ones that, so uh, Ben Gavir, who we talked about earlier, Nash, uh, Minister of National Security. Again, this guy was charged in an Israeli court for terrorism. Uh, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who's... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I want to get into this guy. This guy's very controversial. Uh, he actually denied the existence of the Palestinian people in France. He said it's just made up. There, there was no Palestinians there. They were just Arabs that came around from other places. And this stuff is really getting, it's getting to the point of being disgusting, where they're just kind of wiping out history. So people need to know that us as Palestinians, we have our narrative. And I don't care what the Israeli narrative is. Fine, you have your narrative, but you will not deny us from speaking our narrative. The Nakba was the starting point for this, for us, and we won't deny that. Even if they'll keep denying denying it. We won't deny that because people were displaced. People were kicked out of their homes. Um, it, and now, even in, in Israel, I was reading a few years ago, or maybe two years ago, the Israeli, um, uh, I think it was the education ministry in Israel. They said they'll withhold funds from schools that teach the Nakba. So if you're a Palestinian school and you're teaching people about your own oppression, they won't give you money. That is how sick it is. Like to, to say, and, and, and this whole thing about occupation, like I believe that I personally believe that the root causes are occupation, apartheid, um, and, uh, and systemic racism. So occupation in the West Bank, occupation and apartheid in the West Bank, Gaza is just besieged. It's just an open-air prison. And anything that comes in or goes out of Gaza is controlled by Israel, down to like baby food, literally. So, you know, they just don't have a chance, basically, in Gaza. They're just... Uh, you know, they're just targeted. They can be bombed at any time. And if they resist, if they resist that bombing, well, we'll just call them terrorists. And that's exactly what's happening now, right? Any group like Hamas, I'm going to get into the controversial stuff. Hamas, they're a terrorist organization according to the Canadian government. Hamas only exists as a resistance group. If Israel wasn't there, Hamas wouldn't exist. If there was no occupation, Hamas itself in its charter says, we are resisting the occupation of our people. And again, I'm not defending uh, terrorism, because I I know right after this I'm gonna get a bunch of lackeys from and we both will yeah Israel now and uh, JDL and Meyer Weinstein and all these guys they'll just come out and say oh well everything he said he's just a terrorist supporter so forget it well okay fine you want to say that fine but if you want to have an honest discussion think about it think about it really deeply do you think that a resistance to occupation can exist without an occupation right I mean an occupation in itself necessitates a resistance otherwise you're just sitting down and dying. So all of these groups that are coming out 
Hamas, Islamic Jihad, all of these groups. This is Israel's fault. When you bomb people and kill them, what do you think they're going to do? When you tell them that, hey, you're not allowed to use this road. This road is for Jews only. They're the only ones allowed to drive on this road. You have to take this road that is, uh, that'll take you 20 minutes more instead of one minute. And also you're going to be stopped and, and searched on this road, right? And these, this is apartheid by, by no other, like this is exactly apartheid. Um, so, I mean, Nelson Mandela himself said, and he is the, if anyone knows apartheid, it's Nelson Mandela. He said, our, our freedom is not complete without the freedom of the Palestinians. So, you know, for those who say, uh, yeah, no, Israel's a democracy and it gives rights to all its people and blah, blah, blah. They want to ignore the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They want to tell you that Israel is just Israel proper. So whatever happens in Gaza, Gaza or the West Bank, that's not our fault, right? Even though we control their lives, we bomb them. Uh, it's not our fault. You know, that's let them run their own affairs. But they don't let them run their own affairs because in Gaza, everything, like I said, everything that goes in and out of Gaza is monitored by Israel. Nothing is controlled by Hamas. Nothing. Only internally, maybe, you know, uh, handing out uh, food to people who are starving or whatever or, or, or resistance. Oh, this is for Hamas, but nothing else. So um, I think all of these things are very important to point out in the discussion, um, as controversial as they are. Uh, the Nakba, if I could say one more thing about the Nakba, I know I keep saying You can screaming. say a million more things, okay. man. So the Nakba itself... It's important because it's been denied by, Israel, by Israelis for many, many years. Um, and it's important to know that in the 90s, Israel actually released a whole bunch of documents that were previously unreleased. And there was a group called the New Historians, uh, Benny Morris, Ilan Pape, and uh, Avi Schleim. So these are three Israeli uh, Jewish uh, academics. They went through all of the literature and they're, I'm not going to get into the details, but ultimately they said that um, they have slightly different opinions, but ultimately they said that the Nakba did happen and it was planned. So Israel actually planned to kick out these Palestinians and it wasn't just, oh, they just left on their own or whatever. It was a program that was planned to, to kick them out. Um, and if you don't like it, if you don't like what I'm saying, go look up Benny Morris. He's an Israeli Zionist. He lives in Israel. He thinks Israel should be for Israel, not for the Palestinians. So he's not on my side. He's not on my side at all. Um, Elon Pape is a little bit more controversial. Avi Schleim, again, another guy that you can sit in Israeli here, he'll tell you, yeah, he's an academic. So, I mean, I don't, Israel's right-wing government is so far right-wing right now that it doesn't even fall in line with history. So um, that's the situation the Palestinians are facing. And despite all this, they're persevering. The Palestinians are, they're celebrating World Kofiya Day today. Um, you know, there's children, last night, a fa or two nights ago, a family of five was killed. They attacked uh, an apartment building, a residential apartment building. The Israeli army, the most moral army in the world, attached, attacked the residential building. Um, and if you look, uh, if you notice that, you know, through all this conflict and all this um, two sides thing and, it's always Palestinians that's dying. The numbers are always, always, and I, like I said, I've been doing research for the last little while. Every single conflict, they're either 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 Palestinians dead versus Israelis. And when you start reading the literature, it's always Israelis had to run into bomb shelters. Someone fell while running into a bomb shelter and rolled their ankle. I was reading a report about what ha the worst thing that happened in the last targeted bombing. The Iron Dome did its job. It blocked all the rockets from Gaza. But somebody running into a, um, a bomb shelter rolled their ankle. This was the front headline in a paper I was re reading. Meanwhile, that same strike killed 11 children. Not a single mention of a single child. That's why when we say, you know, the Western media is way off, 
uh, and it's actually just only in the West. If you look at any Eastern media, and I've been reading papers from all around the world, they look at this conflict way different than the West does. Um, we already knew that this was going to happen, and and uh, and I told you that you know. I mean, first of all, let me just get to the comments here. I appreciate mm. our, our live tuning audience uh, all the time engaged. Heavy D says, you know, I've heard people say the land was barren and not productive and other such things. It seems like the same old type of colonial language that's used to justify uh, taking from indigenous populations in multiple countries. Uh, Tara Lynn says an amazing interview, so important and heartbreaking. I appreciate hearing from Idris, who says this is a brutally underreported topic. Thanks for giving this airtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, meantime, Suzanne says, you know, pay for slay is also disgusting. Ryan, you're going to push back at all? You know, over 500 rockets from Gaza. Israel's not allowed to defend herself. I mean, I told you yesterday, mm. uh, Musa, you know, in promoting this interview and mentioning that you were going to come on, uh, someone who I respect, Approached me at the Oilers game. Pissed off. Pissed off that you're coming on. Pissed off that I don't have a, a, a Jewish guest to sit here with you. I should mention, in my previous career in terrestrial radio, you did join me, to your credit, in studio with Abe Silverman That's from right. B'nai B'rith. Uh, it was a wonderfully uncomfortable conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the two of you sat there in fellowship, yep. and, and you shared your different thoughts. I think that, you know, the average Canadian, I mean, I even even, even on World Kafia Day, mm. you know, when you're walking through downtown Edmonton right now, wearing your kafiyas, can I call it, it's, it's like, it's That's sort of like a patterned scarf. Is yeah. that how you, for people on the podcast that yeah. can't see you right, right. now yeah. with your free Palestine T-shirt? Yeah. I mean, what sort of what sort of a, a response would you get? I think that the average person, um, this is my privilege speaking, but the average person kind of just wants to steer clear of these conversations. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to have. It feels like you got to pick a side. They don't want to pick a side. Yeah, yeah. That I used to get that reaction a lot. It's funny because public opinion now is actually really falling towards the Palestinian uh, cause. Uh, we, we, you know, me and some of the organizers, the CPCA, CJPME, uh, Mustafa Zaranda, people doing a lot of things in the city. Uh, we've been in discussions talking about our approach and our approach, we've all agreed, is going to start being a bottom up approach rather than a top down approach. What I mean by that is we're not going to governments anymore. We're tired of begging our governments because all the governments seem to give empty platitudes of, yeah, well, we don't, you know, all sides should have peace and please, we need a ceasefire. But no one actually does anything. So we changed our approach and said, you know what, we're going to take a bottom-up approach. We're going to the streets, we're going to the people, and ask the people. Have public opinion change, and that, instead of a trickle-down effect, that goes up into their governments. So this is the approach we're taking, and it's working, because public opinion, you're right, before people would say no, now I walk in the streets like this, people are like, yeah, free Palestine. Everyone knows the, the catchphrase or the line, free Palestine. So I would say no, actually, people are willing to engage now. It's And again, because Israel now has gone so far right-wing, so Extreme. Most people, and I find this, the Zionist supporters or the really pro-Israel supporters right now, they're very silent. They don't want to talk. They're if they see me in the streets, they, I, no one will. I haven't heard anybody argue with me in person. Honestly, it's all been online. It's all been attacks. It's all been you know people DMing me and stuff like this. But. I haven't seen, I've invited even on my social media, I've said, listen, to all the Zionist supporters in the city or across Canada, let's sit down and have a conversation. Nobody reaches out. Nobody, especially at this time, because it's very hard to justify the atrocities of Israel right now. And one thing I'll address, just the person saying the rockets, fine, okay, uh, Hamas fired rockets. I don't justify that. I'm not going to justify any uh, type of uh, attack on anyone. But again, like I said, why is Hamas there? Why is there rocket attacks? Why is it, you have... In Gaza, I just described the besieged Gaza, Gaza Strip, two million people, their lives are completely controlled by Israel, completely, um, down to what goes in in terms of, and in fact, 
and I document this in my book, a number of years ago, they even calculated the amount of calories they should have every person in Gaza on so that they can stay alive, but not, you know, not fully, not healthy. Um, you know, the United Nations put out a report saying by 2020, and it's indeed by 2020, Gaza would be unlivable. And it is unlivable now. Um, the head of the uh, head of the UN investigating this specific uh, incident said that mothers are unknowingly killing their children because they're giving them water that's contaminated. Gaza's water is contaminated. They're, they're bombing their uh, state uh, water plant stations and all these different things. So this is the context in which these people are firing, firing rockets. Now, it's not just, oh, they, they hate Israel, so they're firing rockets at us. No, when every single day you're under occupation and apartheid, you just think to yourself, how am I? It's like having a boot on your chest, okay, all day long. Then you go to grab the boot and pull it off, and then the soldier that's stepping on your chest says, hey, hey terrorism, hey, don't, don't touch my boot. That's exactly what's going on. So, you know, before we start talking about, oh, who did what first, Hamas or Israel or this or that, we need to discuss the root causes. And the root causes are the Nakba started this. They kicked out 750,000 Palestinians. Then in 67, they occupied West Bank and Gaza, Gaza Strip officially. Um, and there was wars ever since. But uh, since then, it's been occupied territory. And these people have been living under occupation. And for people who don't know, like, that's not just a line. Living under occupation means every single day there's an army, there's soldiers, there's tanks in your town. There's checkpoints for wherever you go. You need to show paperwork. It's This is... Uh, I can't describe it any other way. It's it's the worst uh, way to live. We're talking today on May 11th. Uh, it's also the one-year anniversary of uh, the killing. I don't like using the word anniversary. Yeah. Let me just say, a year ago, yeah, it's not an um, Al Jazeera yeah. journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akleh was killed yes. by Israeli forces. Yep. American-Palestinian um, journalists. Yep. Uh, thank you. Uh, yep. Today, uh, the United Nations uh, is demanding, UN experts demanding justice for Al Jazeera journalists uh, Shireen Abu Akleh on the one-year anniversary of her killing. What does justice in this case look like to you? Oh, man. Uh, well, Shireen Abu, Abu Akleh, who was killed, was a prominent journalist, actually, not just prominent to Palestinians. She was prominent in the journalist world, yeah. prominent in the journalist world. And right now, I just read before I came in that the Ministry of Media, the government media in Gaza, reported that Israel is now... Uh, uh, not allowing media to go into Gaza. So this tells me, and I, I know this because I follow the patterns, whenever they say this, get ready for a big bombing because they don't want media there to report on it. If you remember last time around, Israel bombed uh, the building of Reuters, the AP in Gaza. So these are Reuters and AP, for those who don't know, this is this is the uh, basically the guys, the top media guys, right? They put out reports that other media put out. So it's not a Palestinian thing. These are American organizations. These are world organizations that put out media. Israel doesn't allow them to go into Gaza, know that something is going to happen because they don't want people reporting what's happening. And again, like I said, if you want to talk about terrorism, they are bombing civilian residential buildings. So don't come and tell me, oh, Hamas targets civilians. Israel is targeting civilians. And if you want to go through the literature or through even just the tweets, uh, Ben Gavir tweeted out saying, uh, yeah, it, I'm, I can't remember the exact tweet, something like, good job for our uh, soldiers for killing their terrorists. The other side's going to say, good job for our soldiers for killing their terrorists. So, you know, don't come and tell me one side's terrorist. Because, again, uh, one man's uh, hero is another man's terrorist, right? So, or freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Uh, before we run out of time, I want to mention for, for audience members that are in the Metro Edmonton region, you're hosting a Palestinian Day at the Park yep. uh, coming up on Sunday. Yep. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I do. It's, it's uh, to commemorate the Nakba, the thing we were just talking about, the, the big atrocity that started this. Uh, it'll be Sunday, May 14th from 4 to 6. 
uh, at Victoria Park. It's all over social media. You can look at my social media, Canada Palestine Cultural Association social media. Mustafa Zaranda. Social People can media. check out the show notes as well. We'll check, have it oh yeah, there. you'll have it on. So the Jasper Show will have it. Uh, bring your kafiyas again. We encourage people to bring your and bring a donation for the Edmonton Food Bank because we're working with them again uh, on this one. Um, it's going to be about thirty degrees that day, so a chair, maybe some sunscreen, will go a long way. It's a free barbecue, so we'll be giving out burgers and stuff. So we really, it's it's not a celebratory thing. We're not celebrating anything, but we are commemorating the Nakba because the Nakba is a really, really unfortunate time in our history, uh, and we we don't want it to disappear. And uh, the mainstream media, Israel, they're all trying to erase the Nakba from existence and from history and ultimately erase Palestinians from history. Um, last thing I'll say is in the U.S., Rashida Tlaib, she reserved the Capitol Hill Center to hold a Nakba education event, but the Speaker of the House, Republican Kevin McCarthy, canceled the event and instead is hosting a discussion to honor the 75th anniversary of the U.S.-Israel relationship on the same day the children are being killed in Gaza. So it just shows you what we're up against as Palestinians. Um, and But we will resist, and the Palestinian people do resist, um, and they will continue to resist, and they will continue to survive. There are very few people that I've ever met in my entire life that, that advocate or organize uh, in earnest like you do, uh, that, that bring the level of passion that yeah. you do to something. Thank and I know you. it's obviously uh, very personal for you. And I appreciate your appearance here on the show. Thank uh, you. By I, the way, I, it's not just me. There's a lot of people in the community doing good work. I'm just course. a face. I'm don't, I don't do very much. I just come up here and talk. I'm a pretty face and that's it. Uh, well, you, you are a pretty face, pal. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because I've known you for a while. But the Canada-Palestine Cultural Association and Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, you'll find the links for both of those organizations uh, in the show notes here on the podcast and on YouTube. Um, appreciate you joining us in Thank studio, you very Musa. Much, Ryan. And appreciate it's nice it, to see you again. Awesome. We'll see you soon. You bet. You can let us know what you think about what you just heard here by sending us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This conversation happens because of sponsors like the team at Complete Care Restoration. Uh, you can find them online at completecarerestoration.ca. They're the only sponsor of ours that, quite frankly, hopes that you never call them. They hope that you never are in a situation where you have to deal with fire damage, flood damage, mold and asbestos removal. Nothing wrong with the construction renovation project, but the majority of what they do is in partnership or in collaboration with insurance companies, helping people get back on their feet, helping people restore the way things were before disaster struck. We have seen this team in action personally, and we're proud to endorse them, to give them two thumbs up, to tell you that if you are in a nightmare situation, these are the people that you want doing the work. You can give Complete Care Restoration a call today at 780-454-0776. Ran into the team at Kubi Renewable Energy last night and so exciting to hear about how things are happening uh, for Western Canada's busiest solar installer. They're hiring right now, which means that if you're looking for a career in green or sustainable energy, you're going to want to Check out kubienergy.ca today. They're now a licensed engineering company, which means that you can rest assured that Kubi's team of professional electrical and structural engineers ensure that all their projects are completed to the highest of standards. They're also Tesla certified, which means that if you're looking to get a charging wall set up into your house, maybe your family's investing in new EV, a new electric vehicle, you're going to want Kubi to handle that. You can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca. CA. Have you got plans for Mother's Day yet? If not, if you have a Friesen Brothers Fresh Market store anywhere near you, make that the plan for Saturday or Sunday, May 13th and 14th. Friesen Brothers 
Fresh Market stores are going to be hosting an all-you-can-eat Mother's Day brunch featuring all your favorite brunch treats plus special desserts. Created by Friesen Brothers Red Seal Chefs. All of it available for just $25 per person. Plus, every mom is going to receive a complimentary flower to make her feel extra special. You can find more information at Friesen.com slash Mother's Day Brunch. That's Friesen.com. F-R-E-S-O-N. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Hey, how was Only in Theaters last night? That was the film screening at Northwest Fest, and a whole bunch of our Real Talk Patreon supporters had tickets to go check it out. The lineup continues all the way through till the end of the week. Northwest Fest running through till May 12th, and then Rainbow Visions Film Festival running parallel for another couple of days. You can check out the full lineup and get your tickets today at northwestfest.ca. And don't forget, coming up tomorrow, the filmmaker behind the Lebanese Burger Mafia, that's Omar Mualim, will join me in studio. A wonderful story, and the way that that film has come about, super cool, very inspiring. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that some of our Real Talk audience members had a role in that. It's a crowdfunded, audience-supported film project. That's the Lebanese Burger Mafia at Northwest Fest at northwestfest.ca. This second half of the show, we want to talk about safety. There's a lot of talk about safety or perhaps a feeling that it's just not safe anymore in a lot of Canada's bigger urban centers. You see it reflected right here in our home province of Alberta. Just yesterday, Danielle Smith, the leader of the Conservatives, announcing a new initiative where they're going to have violent offenders out on bail monitored with ankle bracelets. This just a couple of weeks after the UCP leader announced that they're going to be bolstering the number of police officers that are on duty in the major urban centers in Alberta. It reflects the understanding that, quite frankly, violent crimes are on the rise and some might even say out of control. Combine that with wildfires right now in Alberta, more than 100 of them burning approximately, depending on when you hear this, 30 of them out of control. It's no wonder people are feeling anxious. Our next guest has all of this, obviously, at the top of his to-do list as the Minister of Public Safety for Canada, the Honorable Bill Blair, joining us. And we appreciate your time, Minister. Thanks for joining us. The wildfire situation, you have a long career in policing. Uh, Explain to us how the federal government and your ministry approaches something like this on the fire front. Yeah, thanks very much, Ryan. First of all, thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. The opportunity to, to, to speak to you this morning. Listen, one of the things I'm responsible for is, is we work very closely with provinces and territories um, in, in responding to emergencies right across the country and, of course, the wildfire situation. Um, I've, I've been in touch with Mike Ellis, uh, your Minister of Public Safety in Alberta. We've been working really closely over the past number of days. My Government Operations Centre, we mobilize whatever federal resources can be brought to bear to assist the province. Um, the province, of course, is the lead on on these types of events with the fire, but but we're working really closely with them. They made a request for assistance. Um, my, one of my jobs is to move fast on that, that request. We've been able to respond positively. We sent them a letter last night. We've already got the Canadian Armed Forces, a number of other resources moving quickly into the provinces. And later on today, of course, we're, we're also announcing a matching fund where we're working with the province, the Canadian Red Cross, to make sure that we can get some some financial assistance out to people that are being impacted on this. But the, the number one priority, as you just said, is people's safety. And getting them to a place of safety and making sure that we 
you know, put those fires out, but also help those communities recover. And that's another one of the jobs that I've got is is I manage the disaster financial assistance arrangement where we work with the province to to help rebuild people's lives, communities and homes um, in the aftermath of these types of events. We talked to a wildfire expert by the name of Mike Flanagan earlier this week on the show, and he was talking to us about the undeniable influence that climate change is having on these fires. And 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 of course, uh, I mean, the, the, the uh, veracity of them and how early they're coming in the season and how difficult they are to put out and how quickly they can spread. How does a federal ministry reflect that knowledge, that evidence, and how does that change how the federal government might approach this? Yeah, a couple of things to unpack there, there, Ryan. Um, first of all, I also develop and put out the National Risk Profile for, for Canada. I just I just uh, made that announcement this morning, but we also do a lot of f- uh, fire and flood mapping for the country. It's undeniable that we're seeing an increase in the severity and the frequency of these climate-related events, and it's directly related to climate change. And exactly as you said, you know, the flooding in British Columbia in 2021 with an atmospheric river, you know, the, the worst flooding that they've seen in over a century. Some of the wildfires... You know, we saw it in 2017 in Alberta, but 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 again, um, the, the the fire season this year started earlier than we anticipated. It's directly related to weather um, and 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 climate because because we've seen you know increased you know lo- lower uh, soil mo- moisture coupled with very high temperatures. The conditions are dangerous, and and we're we're seeing that reflected in in what's happening. But we're also seeing like flooding right across Ontario and Quebec. Um, we 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 had Hurricane Fiona do, do devastating damage. The, a number of these events, and, and one of the things that I monitor very carefully is is the cost of recovery, because I manage that in the government of Canada. We've seen an, almost an exponential increase. You know, we spent almost $7 billion in helping people recover from these types of events in the first 50 years of the disaster financial assistance arrangement. In the last five years, we'll probably spend that much. And so we've seen an, an exponential increase. It means, if you know, you want, I want to spend public dollars smartly. It means investing not just in recovery, but in resilience and, and, and building back stronger and making some of the investments that are going to keep communities safe. Does the average Canadian sort of have a grasp, do you think, of, of, of how emergency management is changing or how the country's risk uh, level is, is changing and, and not in a good way? Yeah, you know, I, I, I wish Canadians didn't have to be so aware of it, but what we've seen with flooding and fires in, in Western Canada, and the flooding right across the, the country, these weather-related events are happening with greater frequency. And, and I think we all understand that, that you know, the times are different. You know, what used to happen once every 100 years or, or, or every 25 years now seems to be almost a perennial event. And so, you know, it does it does tell us that we have a lot of work to do in order to, you know, reduce the impacts of climate change. But it's not just a 50-year plan to reduce the impact of climate change. It's happening right now. So we've got to be ready right now. And it means changing the way, you know, we, we, we construct our, our communities, you know, that we make them use stronger building codes, where we build, how we build, you know, community, where communities are located. One of the things, and this is emergency preparedness weekends, and good opportunity for me to remind Canadians, you got to know your risk, the risk of where you live, and then you have got to be prepared to deal with those risks. And so, making sure you got an emergency kit, that you take steps around your home to make it less less vulnerable to 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 fire, and when these things do occur, you pay attention to local officials, you move when they tell you to move, and 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 you be prepared to keep your family safe. We'll we'll uh, you know it's unfortunate, but on, but circumstances have have resulted in Canadians becoming far more aware of this risk, and we're working really hard to make sure that we help them be prepared. 
Minister, uh, tragedy striking in, in Edmonton a short time ago. A mother and her child stabbed outside of the Crawford Plains School. And, and while this is still under police investigation, we do know that the, the alleged assailant in this case, who was shot by police, had a lengthy criminal history, had been in and out of jail, uh, out on bail. Uh, I think that uh, it, it's, it's telling that yesterday an announcement from Alberta's conservative leader, Danielle Smith, that that party, if it forms government again, is is expected to to uh, roll out a new initiative where violent offenders out on bail will be wearing ankle bracelets. We've seen the number of police officers on duty ramped up by the then Premier Daniel Smith making that announcement. And of course, the 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 platforms of, of both leading parties in this election are reflecting the the sense that uh, violent crime is on the rise. You talk to any big city mayor, or for that matter, any mayor in the province of Alberta right now, and they will acknowledge that this is a real problem. Uh, what's the federal government doing? about this yeah first of all Ryan, let me share my, my own experience before i before i came to ottawa and worked in the federal government i was police officer for 39 years i was the chief of police in toronto for 10 years and and i know a little bit about what it takes and what's necessary to keep uh communities safe i actually believe very strongly in cops count and you're very fortunate in edmonton you've got a very good police chief dale mcphee's been a friend of mine for 20 years and, and and the work that the police do in your community is important. And I was very pleased to see Alberta making some investments. And, and we're starting to see that, you know, governments are, understand the important work the police do and, and that we need more of them. But it's not just that. But but I think it's important to acknowledge as well. There are some people in our society, Ryan, who are just so dangerous that society needs to be protected from them. And we have to make sure that our criminal justice system, the police, our courts, uh, the entire justice system deals with those individuals effectively. And, you know, we've been working very closely with the province, provinces and territories over the past several months. And, and we've heard their concerns about making sure that we have the tools necessary to, that are required to deal with these dangerous individuals more effectively. But but I think there's also some really important work that needs to be done in communities. And, and we've been making those investments as well. And, and that's one of the things the federal government has a responsibility for not just in investing in policing. And we've, you know, we've just recently announced another $390 million to help the provinces and municipalities have the right police resources out there to do the critically important job we need them to do. But we're also investing in communities, investing in kids, and you know, dealing with some of the circumstances that give rise to this violence in, in our communities. Um, I understand people's concerns. I've, lived, I've worked on this my entire life, and I don't think there's any higher responsibility for any order of government of any party than to keep its citizens safe. And when people become fearful, I think fear is the greatest enemy of public safety. And, and, and what we're seeing in our cities right across Canada is people are afraid. They're, they're, they're afraid to take their kids to go shopping on Main Street, take their kids to the park. They're afraid to go in, in their neighborhood and, and engage with their neighbors. And when that happens, our communities become less safe. And so one of the works that we all have to do together is to create a sense of safety and real safety in our communities so that, so that you know, I think the, the, the greatest protection against this type of criminal behavior is, is well-functioning neighborhoods and, and communities where people are and can feel safe. And so that's, that's an important job of the, the, gov the government. It's an important job of the police. It's an important job for all of us. I've, I've had this experience in Toronto. I know, I know, as I said, I know Chief McPhee. He, he's, he's a good police chief. He's got a, a, an outstanding police service. 
you know, we just need to support them in, in the important work we do, but we've all got a responsibility because it's a shared responsibility in keeping communities safe. It's got to be kind of a, uh, if I can talk to you like we're just having a beer right now, it's it's got to be a bit of a weird adjustment going from the, the chief of police in Toronto in, in, in a global city, quite frankly. I mean, Canada's major, most major population center to, to, to sort of the, 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 the gears and the, the, the mechanism and the machine of Ottawa, the po- the political side of it. I, now, I understand as chief, talk to any fire chief, police chief there's a lot of politics obviously there's a lot of administration but still like with regards to how you made that adjustment and how it's impacted your view of of how public safety is preserved or maintained in canada i mean you've you've got to have seen a lot of changes in policing over your time in ottawa what was what was the biggest adjustment for you going from the chief of police uh to a federal cabinet minister a prominent one at that yeah, well, and, and Ryan, it's, it's a good question. I, I spent, like I said, 39 years as a cop, and, and I didn't spend it behind a desk. I spent the vast majority of my, my police career out in communities in some of the, the poorest and most dangerous parts of my great city. Um, and, and keeping the people of my city safe was my life's work. But when I retired from that, and you know, I spent ten years as the chief, which is longer than anybody had ever done it previously. And you know, it was it was it was great work. And and service to the public is is I think one of the most rewarding things you can do, especially service that involves keeping them safe. So when I finished that, I just wanted to find a way to continue to serve. And there is a responsibility of the federal government, of all orders of government, to support all of the efforts that are necessary to keep communities safe. And so you know, I, I had my career and reached the pinnacle of my career in policing, and I'm very proud of that. But I wanted to continue to serve, and I was given an opportunity when I came to Ottawa to continue to support the government, to make sure that we have good laws, that we we, we make the right investments. And in, 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 I spent a lot of time, I was also president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, a number of na- other national organizations as well. And I spent a lot of time advocating for public safety in Ottawa and, and going to government and trying to get people to pay attention to what we needed and the resources that we needed and the support and the laws. And so I was then given an opportunity to go to Ottawa and, and, and you know, I, I don't presume to, to speak for my former colleagues, but I'm more than happy to open the door for them and hold it for them so that they can, and they can be heard. They can, they can advise government on what needs to be done and we can work very closely with them. Because as I said, there's no greater responsibility for any of us than keeping our community safe, especially for our kids. And, and so when I see the type of tragedies that we've seen across this country, I, they just deepen my resolve to keep on working hard to keep people safe. And there's work that we can do together and, and, and a real difference we can make. I, we did it in Toronto. We reduced crime very significantly in Toronto during my tenure as chief, but it, but it requires an investment in resources and it requires a result from everybody to do what's necessary. We've got a, a audience member by the name of Dennis that's watching us on YouTube right now. He says it's not just policing. You know, there's got to be affordable housing. There's got to be mental health funding, addiction supports. Uh, Dennis says, as a former correctional peace officer, let me tell you, you need supports for kids as well. Uh, Dennis is bang on. I, I don't I don't suspect you're going to take issue with any of what he's talking about. How would you assess that? the nation is doing right now i mean obviously you're going to come here you're you're, you're a federal cabinet minister you're, you're going to support where your government's going and the fun and obviously everybody knows that but but your assessment of of where we're at with with mental health supports with affordable housing and and how much of an issue that that remains in the context of talking about public safety so when we look at the social determinants of crime the social determinants of health they're all the same and it, it's poverty it's unemployment it's social injustice in our communities um, the, the, the mental health crisis in this country and the addictions crisis in this country are very, very significant, and they do require huge investments. 
Um, you know, and and I'm in complete agreement with with your caller. He's he's he. I think it just you can't police your way out of these things. You really can't. And 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 so I listen. I, from my from my former profession, of course, I think cops count, and I and I know they make a difference. But that's a, that's not all we have to do. And and we have to make investments, and we are like. And and, and I, I didn't want to come on here, Ryan, and just talk about you know hundreds of millions of dollars that the federal government's investing in community. But we are putting money in communities. And one of the ways we're doing it, by the way, is, you know, rather than just make an announcement and, and shovel money out the door, we're working with municipalities. And that's, I think this is really important. Um, I, I've gone into communities and, and worked with, with, with the council and with the mayors. I always go see the mayor. And I always go see the police chief in every town I go to and, and sit down with them and, and, and say, OK, who do, what do we, where do we have to make investments? And I'm not talking about policing. I'm talking about those community organizations that work with kids that help them make better choices and, and, and result in better outcomes for those communities. What are the investments we have to make in mental health supports and addiction treatment supports? And because those are the things that ultimately are going to make the community safer. And and, and I think it's 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 a complex um, multi responsibility uh, response that is required here. Like every everybody's got an important job to do. I think sometimes we put greater too much emphasis on policing and corrections. You know, you, you can't put everybody in jail. Frankly, I think we should the people we should keep in jail are the ones we're afraid of, not the ones we're mad at. And, and because there are some people dangerous, we should we should lock them up and keep them, you know, protect society from them. But there are also some people that, you know, they're troubled and they're and they're and they're they cause trouble in communities. We have to manage those situations much better. You know, I think uh, sometimes we over rely on on corrections and 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 we've got to we've got to go head upstream and correct the circumstances that are happening in communities and 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 make that deal with that situation. Um, I'm, I'm, and by the way, you know, I also believe very strongly. It's one of the reasons I went to this federal government. Because we've been making investments in helping lift kids out of poverty, and over half a million kids in Canada now live above the poverty line as a result of some of the things we're doing. That makes a difference for those kids, and it makes a difference for their lives, and it makes a difference for the communities they live in. And so, I really think very strongly that those are really important investments. It's not just about policing, but I also know that when situations become dangerous and frightening for people, that, that we need to make sure the police are there and that they know how to do their job right, and that they do it in a way that that keeps our community safe. Minister, we're going to be talking to journalist uh, Adam Zevo next week about his report in the National Post uh, that suggests that the federal government's safer supply initiative uh, is fueling actually a new opioid crisis. He deems it to be a drug fail. And uh, he's talked to a lot of experts and he makes the argument, the columnist does, uh, that drugs that are, quote, handed out for free are being sold on the black market to actually fund fentanyl addictions. Before I talk to him about this, I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to check in with you and get your assessment of, of how this approach or, or this initiative in, in, in light of addressing the opioid crisis is going. Uh, do you have a response to the piece first? Well, I, I, haven't read, I haven't read the police, but I've, I've heard I've heard the concern, and and so I have a bit of a response. This I actually worked in drug enforcement. They set up the largest uh, major drug enforcement uh, program in the country, and and ran it for a number of years. I even worked undercover for a number of years, uh, where I worked on the street and bought drugs. And so I'm not unfamiliar with the environment um, and some of the enormous challenges. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. You know, a number of decades ago in this country, we we criminalized addiction. And you know, it, it, and frankly, it didn't solve any problems. Lock, locking up people who are addicted—that's that's a medical malady. There, there's there, there's an illness there, and and so making sure that those people have access to treatment and 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 rehabilitative programs and other supports. And, and it's not just me that thinks this. You know, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police passed a resolution a couple of years ago 
in which they urged the government to to, to de basically decriminalize this. They they saw that it was it was not an effective program to keep on arresting and charging criminally and, and pump, pumping them through the criminal justice system simply because they were addicted, in some cases hopelessly addicted to their drugs. And we we're also responding to an overwhelming crisis in this country where almost 4, 000, more than 4,000 Canadians each year lose their lives to, to, to drug overdose. And the, it was the police as, as, as one of our first and most important you know, rational voices on this issue who came and said, what we have been doing for decades is not working and people are dying. Canadians are dying and we need to take a different approach. And and so you know and, and I agree with that I think I think they were right and and so we we've been responding to that and 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 part of it was allowing the police not to to criminalize these individuals who are addicted but rather you know facilitate their their treatment in a safer approach and and to turn this primarily into a medical response rather than a criminal justice response and having said that let me be also clear we still need a strong criminal justice response to the purveyors of the poisons. Who bring, who manufacture and bring these drugs into our country and are killing so many of our kids and and causing so much harm in our communities. And so it's really important that that work continue. Um, I, I think making sure that people have to have access to, to 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 services and supports, and that can include, in some controlled circumstances, access to a safer supply of the drugs to which they are addicted. Um, and, and but that should be managed and supervised in a medical situation and, and by the medical community. And it's not really a matter for the criminal justice system. And at the same time, we, you know, we see some of the, the problems it's causing in a community. I, like I said, I, th I think the police were right in saying that, you know, criminalizing addiction doesn't work and hasn't made sense. But we're still we're still, I think, working through how we can manage this in a medical setting in a safer way so that it doesn't impact our communities in the way it, it clearly is. I, I know I guarantee you don't want to chime in on, on provincial politics for sure. But I think if, if you take a look at, at party positions in Alberta, for example, right now on things like addressing the opioid crisis, you'll find different opinions on the on the best way to go at it. You know, the conservatives have have, have defunded some supervised consumption services, as an example, but they've increased funding on, on detox programs programs and, and programs that are that are aimed at getting people uh you know addressing those addiction issues meantime obviously you'll, you'll have a lot of folks from the medical community um, and the New Democrats arguing that these supervised consumption services need to be more robustly funded and that's just on the consumption that that that's the safe injection site so to speak never mind talking about things like safe supply uh, which comes with its own argument i mean we had we had we had partisan uh, debaters on this show just a few days ago and and and, and the conservative one of them erica Brudy's opened by saying listen the new democrats want to start handing out free drugs i mean that's how that's characterized so it's it's very it's very divisive it's very polarizing the politics of it all are are, are very much torqued uh, they there's sort of a turbocharged element to it from a public safety standpoint or from a legislative standpoint does that make it i mean how much more difficult does it make it when 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 the politics of it uh, are, are so significant and when so many people feel so passionately about a subject that quite frankly they might not actually know a lot about yeah, and you know what, Ryan? I, I, listen, that's one of the great, great things about this country is there's a great diversity of opinion in every place, and I and I think that's you know the fact that we can debate these things and have different ideas that are brought forward. That's fine, and I'm I'm very comfortable with that. Can I just, I'll just back up a little bit. You know, one of the things that I first dealt with for, for the federal government when I first came to Ottawa, the prime minister came to me and said, you know, what do you think about the policy we have with respect to legalizing cannabis? And and I said to him, if if all we're going to do is legalize cannabis, then 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 we're not going to solve the problem. As a matter of fact, we could create some new ones. 
I said, but if we are prepared to strictly regulate its, its production, its distribution, and its supply, I said, I think we can really make a difference. And, and the differences that I said that I thought we could make, right now, the, the greatest risk of, of with cannabis was its use by young kids. And so I, I thought if, if we could find ways through public education and through you know, our regulations to, to reduce the usage among kids, that would be a very positive thing. As a former cop and a guy who worked organized crime for a long time, I also knew that organized crime made literally billions and billions of dollars from the production and sale of, of illegal cannabis in this country. I wanted to take that money away from them. And so by creating a regulated, safe supply of cannabis where people would know its potency, its purity, and its provenance, and they could be assured that you know, their money wasn't going into some organized crime group that does all sorts of bad things in their community, that'd be a good thing. And then finally, I wanted to make sure that Canadians who chose to use cannabis, and I, we weren't promoting the use of cannabis at all, but, but for those who chose to use it, and a lot of Canadians did, first of all, I wanted them to be able to do it safely so that they wouldn't be you know, harmed by, by whatever, whatever they were consuming. And, and also, I thought about all the young kids, particularly young kids in minority communities and indigenous communities that were getting a criminal record for simple possession of marijuana. And that was producing lifelong harms to those kids. And I thought there was a lot of good that we can do, not by just legalizing cannabis, but by strictly regulating its production, distribution, and consumption. And the world didn't come to an end. And there was, a, I, I will tell you, I, I had people barking at me saying, you know, the, it's like legalizing murder. And I said, no, it's just a, it's a, it's a more sensible way for this nation to deal in a mature way with, like, let's recognize the potential harms and let's do everything we can to reduce those harms by smart regulation and policy. And so that's what we did. And quite frankly, the world didn't come to an end. And, and I think for the police community, we reflect on, you know, you can, if you regulate these activities, like the criminal justice system, the criminal law is a blunt instrument. And sometimes, you know, taking a sledgehammer to, to a very delicate and difficult situation um, where, 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 you know, there's so many societal factors that are impacting on this thing and medical factors that are impacting on this thing. You know, sometimes we just need to be a little bit more thoughtful and, and stop yelling at each other and start listening to each other. I know you got to go. Let me just ask you this in follow up. Final question here. Do you have another interview right now? Do you have to go right this minute? Can I ask I'm, you one? I'm, I'm good. I'll stick with you. R real quick question. Uh, are you surprised that that the black market continues to thrive as robustly as it? I don't have evidence to point to. All I, all I have is anecdotal evidence. I know we're friends of mine. Some of them are still getting their weed and it's not from legal stores and it's not through legal avenues. Are you surprised approximately five years after legalization of cannabis in Canada that the black market is continuing to operate as robustly as it is? Yeah, of course, I'm not surprised. I, I worked in that black market and I, and I used the criminal law to, to try to control it for a long time, but we've made real progress on this, Ryan. Like, and, and for about 65, 70% of the cannabis consumed in this country is now legally produced. So we've really put in a huge dent in the profits of organized crime. We've, we've also seen a significant reduction in cannabis use among kids. That was the big goal for me, as, because protecting kids is, is, is the most important work that we can all do. And, and so, and so it's, it's a work in progress. There are some things, and we're, we're going back and looking at those regulations now that will, hopefully will make it more difficult for organized crime to continue to profit in, in this world. Um, to, you know, to try to also, and I, I think Canadians are quite understandably concerned about the proliferation of, of cannabis shops in, in their community. It's a little bit better than having some drug dealer standing in the schoolyard, but, but it's still problematic in some places. We just need to be thoughtful about how we regulate these things. Um, but, but but again, I think it's, it's an important and now it has become, I think, a pretty mature conversation in this country. Um, and, and we need to, you know, the opioid crisis of, is a real crisis in this country. People are dying and it's impacting on safety in, in every part of our communities. 
we need to be reflective on how we as a community address that. Everybody's got a responsibility and a role to play. And like, like I said, it's it's not an either or. There's a lot of things we're going to have to do to get this thing right. And we're committed to getting it right because, you know, keeping Canadians safe, saving lives and keeping our communities safe. And the, the other thing I worry about, Ryan, is, is, is fear. And when people become fearful, you know, I think I have always thought fear was the greatest enemy of public safety. And in, in, in my city, when people were afraid to, to go shopping on Main Street or take their kids to the park, when they didn't talk to their neighbors, when they didn't engage with the police, they didn't, they didn't engage with each other, those communities became really unsafe. And so I, I worry about the impact of saying, and sometimes the div divisiveness of the rhetoric. This is a really a, a challenge that, that to get, cause people to come together and find solutions together. And it's not the same solution in every part of the country either. You know, rural communities are facing different types of challenges, and we've got to make sure that, that we support those people and, and do the things that are necessary to keep every part of this country safe. Do you have a position on Alberta potentially replacing the RCMP with a provincial police force? No, that's Alberta's choice. Like, I, I think the, the people of Alberta deserve great policing. I, I think that the RCMP is a great police service, but you know, I, I, I'll just make a comment. People need to also have a say in how their community is policed. This is what we call governance. And, and, and the police, we give them extraordinary powers and, and impact in our lives. And for that, we, they need to be subject to oversight and accountability. And, and so I think those are the things we really have to think about getting right. So that in every part of Alberta and in every part of Canada, the people in those communities know that they know their police. They know that the police are accountable to them and, and that, that they've got an important job to do, that they're adequately resourced to do that job. Um, and, and, and so, like I said, the RCMP is one of the finest police services in the world. But it's up to the province of Alberta, it's up to the people of Alberta to determine how they want to govern policing in, in their communities and, and the type of services they want. And whatever decision they, they make, I'll respect it. The Honourable Bill Blair is Canada's Minister of Public Safety, Minister for Emergency Preparedness. We thank you for your availability today. We appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ryan. Have a good day. Yeah, you got it, Minister. Thanks very much. Are you surprised that I, I'm surprised to hear that he says they have reason to believe or they have, they have statistics that demonstrate that to them that 70 percent of cannabis that's consumed in Canada is purchased legally mm -hmm. through regulated avenues. Uh, are, you, are you surprised at that seven out of ten seven out of ten joints smoked in Canada <laughs> are, per, are purchased legally seven out of ten bangers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would have thought it would be more because I know the black market is still out there. Like I'm not a huge consumer of cannabis. You know yeah. that. But I do have friends who still are a little upset with the way the government has handled it. Uh, the access to it, the, just the way you know this, you're you're involved with it, you're invested yeah. in your in your yeah. brother's company. Uh, the way it gets to the store, how you can't get, you know, when you're when you have a specific uh, strain or whatever that your body's used to, you, you can't get it all the time. But I was surprised. I thought it would be at least half is still probably black market. So thirty percent. I I think does that mean this is working? I because we want. I seventy percent to me uh, is is a positive number. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think of if in my own orbit and everybody that listens to this, you know, you're you're walking your dog as you're listening to this podcast. You know, you're thinking about your friends, uh, you know, your beloved potheads, right? And <laughs> like, where you know, where are they getting their God weed? Bless them. And and are seven out of ten of them getting it from the store? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I would say like fifty fifty is kind of the vibe I, I I pick up or I get. I think it's 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 convenient. It's regulated. You know what you're getting. You know that mm -hmm. it meets stringent standards. You know all that kind of thing. Uh, but but the black market does obviously continue to operate. I was I was curious 
to hear how he would answer that question. Are you surprised that the black market continues to thrive? He goes, of course, I'm not surprised. Right? <laughs> I mean, you, you look at any any industry that's been around for, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. People have been consuming cannabis for thousands of years. Obviously, uh, I don't think that decriminalizing or legalizing it is going to kill a black market in five years. But but you wonder what that trend might look like. I mean, you know, prohibition didn't work. We can all acknowledge that. Um, but I'm sure we're eventually. coming up on 100 years mm-hmm. of alcohol being legal again mm-hmm. in the United States. And, and you look now at how many people would buy, you know, moonshine out <laughs> of a mason say, jar from no. your oh my buddy down the street makes moonshine in a boot. Not many uh, bathtubs in Edmonton yeah, full you know, of moonshine. Yeah, I don't think there'd be a lot of people that would buy it, <laughs> even if it was cheaper. Right. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious to see but where that goes. But the access and the way, you know, we consume alcohol, it's a lot easier. It's a lot better. Right. We're still trying to figure out this cannabis thing i think so and you yeah. know that too yeah so uh as mentioned uh adam zevo will be joining us early next week on the show uh to get into his piece in the national post drug fail the liberal government's safer supply fueling he says he argues after talking to about a dozen experts and we'll get into it uh, a new opioid crisis and of course we'll bring uh we'll welcome a counterpoint to the show as well uh if you want to know more about who is coming up on the show, when we're going to be talking about certain things, and, and, and a nice, easy list to follow of some of our recent highlights. Make sure you subscribe to our email list. Johnny, let me show you my screen right now. If you just go to our website, ryanjesperson.com, got a little facelift recently. Not me. The website did. <laughs> I'm next, but the website first, uh, you go to ryanjesperson.com and then you just, it's really easy to use. You just scroll down. You see here, here's where you can follow. You can watch us live on YouTube. You can stream us live on the Mixler audio app presented by California Closets. And then you find our podcast list. And then here, join our newsletter right at the bottom. You punch in your email address and you sign up to receive our emails. And then that's how you can stay in the know. A lot of times there's little exclusive details there for our email subscribers. Uh, We appreciate everybody that checks out our email uh, that comes around every weekend getting you started on your Monday morning. This interview with the Honorable Minister was presented by our friends at Apex Automation. They're putting out the call right now for professional engineers. How about that interview yesterday about the the dust up, the the legal battle over the word engineer? Wow. Hey, if you missed that, make sure you check out yesterday's episode. If you're a professional engineer, whether you've just graduated from the UFC or the U of A or elsewhere, or maybe you've been in the game for a while and you're looking for a change of pace, Apex Automation is hiring. Why work at Apex? Well, number one, they encourage and support professional development. That means they're going to support your education, your mentorship. They're committed to your career growth, and that means opportunities for flexibility and collaboration. Also, great perks and benefits. Group RSP matching, paid time off, competitive wages, healthcare benefits that are comprehensive, plus social activities like Edmonton's Best Christmas Party, hosted by me and DJed by Johnny Infamous. And then their company culture, which is second to none. They value diversity. They welcome candidates with different backgrounds. And of course, they support the communities where they live and work. All compelling reasons to submit your resume today to the team at Apex Automation. Is Mother's Day for you? Maybe an opportunity to drop off something sweet for mom and let her know how much you appreciate her. Then you know exactly where you need to go. It's the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Show mom how much she means to you with a DQ Mother's Day cake. That's that signature fudge and crunch center surrounded by their world famous soft serve. Give mom the sweetest gift today. It's happiness however you want it with a DQ cake from the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount and Baseline Road. 
Does this summer for you maybe mean a reinvention of your outdoor space? You know, you're, you're sick and tired of looking into your backyard and going, oh man, this could look so much better. It's just not functional. And because it's not functional nor flattering, you're not using the space. You're not inviting your friends over. You're not hosting those, I was going to say campfires, but now's a really terrible time to light a fire in your backyard. Let me take that one back. Maybe we'll delete that part out of the podcast, Johnny. <laughs> we'll see. The point is, if you're looking to entertain this summer, but you're going to need to maybe have some improvements done to the space ahead of time, today's a perfect day to check out landscapeedmonton.ca. That's where you'll find out more about Eden Landscaping. Mike and his team, more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. They can work with your vision. They can work with your Pinterest board, and they can work with your budget. Custom landscaping services, including full project management, which means you're not having to subcontract anything out, and Eden's on site till the job is done to your satisfaction. You can learn more about their company's philosophy and what it means to be a great listener as a landscape designer, again, at landscapeedmonton.ca. And a reminder that we're putting out the call for trash talk submissions. If you're ticked off about something, you got to get something off your chest. Send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Just put trash talk in the subject line. Tomorrow, we'll be getting into some of the biggest bangers we've received all week. It's presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. If you're a decision maker in Alberta or Saskatchewan, whether it's a big or small business, whether it's an entire community, if you're working in administration and you're responsible for quality of service and bottom line, like dollars and cents, Keep it local today in garbage, recycling, landfill management, water hauling, and a whole lot more at localenvironmental.ca. As mentioned, tomorrow's show is going to be one you're not going to want to miss. We're going to take the comments from the Federal Minister of Public Safety and put them in front of Edmonton's Mayor, Amarjeet Sohi. He'll kick off the show after doing a t-shirt toss with Johnny last night right here in the Real Talk studio. Then, our Real Talk roundtable with the group chat. We're going to talk Alberta politics, obviously. And then filmmaker Omar Mualim will learn about the Lebanese burger mafia. It's going to be a great one. We hope to see you live or later. Thanks for supporting Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.